Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter Five, Sobering News. Here's a box with a dozen half pints of jam, a mix of all kinds. Margaret pushed a thin cardboard box into Martin's arms. Hold it carefully. It's kind of flimsy for holding jars. All of my sturdy boxes went to carrying kindling. She turned to pick up a second box. This box has six pints of salsa, not the hot kind. Be sure to tell people that. Me? Martin asked. You can tell them. You know what's in them better than I do. I can't go, Martin. I just got the fire going in the cinder block fire pit thing you made. Well, why would you start the fire now? You knew the meeting started at ten. Because I have to can up those beets before they go soft. Martin sighed in protest. They just dug up those beets two weeks ago. They were in no danger of going soft that day. He could recognize, however, a smokescreen excuse when he heard one, but he knew there was no point in arguing. A canning process will not be aborted once it's begun. Now, you have to carry these boxes very carefully. She pushed and pulled at the boxes, but couldn't get them arranged in Martin's arms to her satisfaction. I don't want you dropping anything. Can't trade broken jars. No, 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 no. You can't hold them like that. The sides will bend out. Okay, okay, Martin said, with restrained exasperation. Maybe I shouldn't try to carry both boxes. I'll have Dustin carry the other one. No, Margaret said. I sent him and Judy up on Baldwin's meadow to gather the last of the autumn berries, before we get a hard frost. Okay, then I'll use a wagon. I could put down a layer of towels to cushion the... Margaret's shoulders slumped. I left it at the walkers. It's full of kindling. Ruby slowly made her way from the hallway to the dining-room chair, taking small, shuffling steps. Clearly, Ruby was not a solution. Susan sat at the far end of the couch, trying to look as if she was engrossed in watching the birds at the feeder and completely detached from the dilemma of the flimsy boxes. "'Maybe I should just take the jam,' Martin offered. Margaret shook her head. "'I don't think that many people will want the sweets. Some might.' The salsa might appeal to others. Better to have more to offer. She looked at Susan for what seemed forever. Susan, for her part, continued a fixed fascination with the bird feeder. Margaret deflated with a heavy sigh. Fine, she can carry the other box, she said gravely. Oh, I know, Margaret's voice perked up. Maybe she should set up a different table. It might increase trading potential. She was digging for a silver lining. Martin couldn't see how two separate tables would make any difference for trading, but he didn't want to disparage the straw she was grasping at. It was expedient to stay silent. Here, take this up to the trade meeting, Margaret held out a box of jam to Susan. Susan stood up, blinking her eyes. Huh? Uh, I was just watching the birds. What's going on? Margaret put the box of jam in her arms. These are half pints of different flavors of jam. Trade for protein foods, meats if you can get it, beans, something like that. And Martin, tell people how the salsa will make plain food more interesting. Might help. Remember, meats are best. Beans are okay if no one is trading meats. But don't be too long. Hurry back when the meeting is done. There's things to do around the house, you know. Susan walked on the other side of the road for Martin until they had crested the rise and the house was no longer in view. She moved closer alongside him. I can't believe she actually wanted me to come, and it was her idea. Martin chuckled. I wouldn't go that far. 
It was more a case of having cooked her own goose. It's like she didn't want to come. Oh, she didn't. Why? I didn't think the meeting on Friday was all that terrible, Susan said. Well, except for that fight, of course, and realizing that I was a helpless city person. That wasn't much fun, but I'm fixing that. Still, what's the big deal? Why doesn't she want to go to town meetings? Oh, that goes back to the town we used to live in. We tried to get involved, you know, responsible citizens and all. We volunteered for committees, served on panels, stuff like that. She wanted to get things done, make things better. That's just how she is. But it really frustrated her. The powers that be were more interested in the appearance of action than actually doing anything. Reports that she pained over were just bookshelf filler for the councilman. Martin chuckled at the memory. Yeah, one time she really blew up during a council meeting. Oh, what a fireball she was. Started telling them all off. It was all true, of course, and everyone knew it. But you can't actually say those things out loud and hold any committee positions. Really? She blew up at them? Did you guys get kicked out of town? Susan asked, as if it was a dark family secret. <laughs> uh, no. This little house on Old Stockman Road came up on the market, and it was kind of like my dream house. Woods, a stream, shallow well that I could put a hand pump on. All it lacked was a wood stove, which I had put in. So we happily left the old town politics behind. We've just been living the quiet life, minding our own business. So, the long story short, Margaret doesn't really want to get involved in town matters ever again. As Martin and Susan got nearer to the town hall, other people could be seen carrying boxes. A few of them pulled kitty wagons. Martin took some comfort in knowing his revolver rode in his coat pocket, but realized he really couldn't react to anything quickly with his arms full of salsa jars. A defensive tool could be handy during the trading portion of the meeting, in case some crazed have-not tried to cash in. Yet, were some jars of salsa really worth shooting someone? The rows of wooden folding chairs in the auditorium were more filled than they were on Friday. Folding tables rested against the back wall. Boxes and bags were lined up along the two long walls. Martin gestured toward a gap in the boxes. Susan put her box in the gap. Martin laid his on top. Not many open seats this time, said Martin. Looks like we'll be on our own again. Susan pointed to a pair of seats in the center. Uh, aren't you worried Margaret's going to ask where you sat? Yeah, she didn't last time, Susan said with an embarrassed smile. All she said was something about separate tables. True, he motioned for her to precede him down the row. A flash of guilt tingled Martin's shoulders. He was looking forward to her sitting beside him. He told himself it was just the comfort of a known face versus strangers. He never was much for crowds. He could honestly tell Margaret that the hall was almost full, and there were very few seats to choose from, if she asked. Martin spotted some of the familiar faces sitting in roughly the same places. People do have their favorite spots, he thought. Candace sat in the front row again. In the back row sat Dunnan and his wife, heads down, arms folded. Apparently they didn't get down to Wellesley. Perhaps they were stopped at the border. Pete was in his previous spot, too. Jeff Landers walked in carrying a couple of file folders and a pad of paper. His somewhat generous frame was more evident than usual, enclosed in a thick sweater composed of large triangles in all sixteen crayon colors. Whoa, Jeff!' called a man near the door. "'What's with the sweater?' 
Lenders blushed a bit, but kept walking briskly. Now all eyes followed him. Hey, yeah, that's a mighty bright sweater for such a important guy like you, quipped a tall, thin man in a corduroy ear-flap cap. Martin recognized the cap and the man from visits to the general store. It seemed like he was always there, telling jokes to the cashier girl or long stories to the owner as he tried to sweep the wide pine board floor. They called him Mr. Hooper. Lander sidestepped behind the others seated at the table to get into the center seat. This is a really warm sweater, okay? His tone had a hint of defensiveness to it. There's no heat in the building yet, so I dressed warm. Besides, my wife says bright colors make you feel warmer. She's right, added Hooper. I feel warmer just looking at it. <laughs> way even way back here. He covered his eyes with his arms. A few soft chuckles rose and faded. My wife tells me it's a psychological thing, added Landers. I'll be sure to tell her that it worked on some of you, too. He shot a quick glance and a hint of a wink at Hooper. More laughter rippled through the seated crowd. Landers took his seat. Okay, okay, that's enough humor. Let's get started. Chuckles merged into a wave of creaks as people settled into the wooden chairs. Susan settled in her chair beside Martin, like a hen settles onto a nest. She had a satisfied little smile. First off, thanks everyone for getting the word out about a meeting today. This is a pretty good turnout, considering there's no phones and all. As you know, we've got a bit of a situation on our hands with the power being down. Mike, can you give us a quick report on the shelter at the school gym? Sure. As of last night, we have 23 families staying in the gym. 61 people. It's a bit crowded, but we can fit in a few more. Food is okay, since most families brought some with them. Fuel for the generator is going about as we expected. Assuming a delivery won't be coming, my guess is there's about another week's worth in the tank. This caused a minor wave of murmurs in the crowd. Some hands went up. Thanks, Mike. Landers faced the crowd with some papers in his hands. Before we take questions, a little bit ago, a courier delivered some communications from Concord. It's not much, but it's some weird from the capital. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> from Governor Vincent's office to the towns and citizens of the state of New Hampshire, the ongoing power outage continues to be a challenge for us all. Representatives from our state's utilities tell us that crews are working around the clock, but that a resolution will not be as quick as needed for many of you. Recognizing the needs of our most valuable citizens, I have authorized state emergency measures. The local FEMA director has assured me that federal aid will be rolling out soon. There are no plans to transfer local law enforcement personnel. I have not yet activated the New Hampshire National Guard, though I may request their activation for local aid efforts if needed. I urge you all, the good citizens of New Hampshire, to reach out and help your neighbors. Together, we can get through this situation. Landers put down his papers. I told you it wasn't much. There were some other notices about other state departments and such, but you can see me later if you're interested. There was another paper. Landers held it up that basically said state departments will stop writing paper checks too, since the Postal Service has been pretty much shut down. There won't be any paychecks, pension checks, or whatever. The bottom line is that there will be no business as usual. The feds might send some aid, but if Concord can't wire funds or mail checks, uh, the feds probably can't either. I got a pension check Wednesday, said an older man. 
Hasn't done me any good, anyhow. There's no bank to put it in. Right, continued Landers. We've got to focus on what we have right now. The governor asked us to do pretty much what we've been doing anyhow, which is take care of things at home ourselves. Drew Haddock spoke up. Some of us are a bit better situated in this outage than others. Generators, wood heat, etc. The shelter at the school can't take in everyone, and maybe not anyone for too much longer. One thing we can do is consider taking in one or more of your neighbors if you have some spare rooms. Martin glanced at Susan. She glanced back with a hint of a grateful smile. That brings up a related point, Landers said. Empty houses. With people staying in the shelter, or with each other, or the people who left town to go stay elsewhere, lots of people left town. That means we have a lot of empty houses around town. That presents a new problem. Chief Berg? Landers nodded to the police chief, who stood, arms folded, in a brook-no-nonsense pose. Yes, thanks. The police chief addressed the crowd in his public address voice. Unoccupied homes may become targets for thieves, vandals, or squatters. Please notify myself, one of the selectmen, or at least tell a neighbor who can tell one of us. Our ability to do routine patrols will be reduced, so it will help a lot to know which houses are occupied and which are not, or aren't supposed to be. His last words had a slightly ominous tone. We have had reports of people walking the highways, mostly Long Meadow Road and South Road. Most of them mind their own business and move through. Reports are a few have been more mm, assertive, shall we say, about requesting help. Use your discretion, of course. Best practice is not to open your door and to be armed. We don't have the manpower to monitor every road and house. That brings me to the topic of communications. Can I see a show of hands? How many of you have a pair of walkie-talkies or some other kind of radio equipment at home? Several hands went up slowly. Hmm, Chief Berg frowned, unimpressed with the meager response. They don't have to be big fancy units, even a pair of kids' talkies or a little set that you use while hunting. A few more hands went up. Well, it's a start. Could I have you folks come see me after the meeting? I'd like to coordinate a radio alert network as best we can. Chief Berg resumed his sentinel pose at the end of the table. That's all I have for now, Jeff. Martin stared at the chair back ahead of him, trying to remember what became of the little walkie-talkies he got Dustin when he was in high school. He'd have to go digging for those when he got home. Thanks, Chief, said Landers. Chief Anton? Anton stood and cleared his throat. <clears throat> As I said this Friday, but I'll repeat it for those of you who weren't here then, I can't stress enough to you all the potential fire dangers these days. Between candles for light, or trying to heat your homes with fireplaces you haven't used since, well, maybe never, the risk of fire in your home is huge. As Chief Berg said Friday, there is no 911 anymore. There's no fast way to call us at the fire department. We'll make every effort to get there as quick as we can, but if you get careless with candles or fireplaces, we might not be able to help you in time. Don't assume that we're just three minutes away anymore. If you plan to heat with wood, but you're not accustomed to it, come and see me later. I'm going to hold a little fireplace safety briefing after this meeting. I strongly advise you to come and listen if you have the slightest reservations. A few basic precautions can keep you from burning your house down. With that, 
Chief Anton sat back down. People murmured to each other in serious tones. Walter, asked Landers, do you have some news for us from the outside world? Yes, sir, I do. Walter shuffled up front with a handful of papers. He turned to face the crowd. I'm going to summarize on account of time. Feel free to see me later if you want to know more, and I can show you the notes. He cleared his throat like someone avoiding bad news. <clears throat> uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a mess out there. Seems like the big riots have tapered off, but really only turned into little or smaller riots. Nobody talks about containing them anymore. The fires in Chicago and Baltimore have burned themselves out for the most part. Things are a royal mess down in Washington. Still no news on where the president is. There's a lot of squabbling over who's in charge, but Senator Culp seems to have the most agencies backing him. Federal aid has been flowing, but that itself has become a bit of an issue. States in the middle of the country have been complaining that federal aid has only been going to the big cities on the coasts. Feds say they're just addressing the most urgent needs. Others say the feds are playing party favorites with the aid. To make matters worse, the feds have been demanding that the Midwest states send additional supplies to help the coastal cities. COPE is threatening to impound things by executive order, which has some governors seeing red. To summarize, it doesn't sound like folks are playing nicely out there, so it doesn't sound like they're going to be in any hurry to help us out. Walter slowly sat back down. An awkward silence hung in the room for a long moment. Martin tried to picture the tensions out there, but it was too abstract. The bottom line seemed to be that bigger powers were fighting over aid, so small towns like Cheshire were probably not on anybody's radar. Martin didn't think he expected federal aid was a possible way to solve his household's food shortage. He knew he must have had such a secret hope, however, because he felt it die. "'Thank you, Walter,' said Landers. "'That was a bit sobering.' Not much we can do about what's going on out there in the rest of the country. What we can do is try to work together right here. Lenders bumped up a cheerful tone in his voice. Ah, from all the stacks along the walls, I can see that many of you have brought in things to trade. Unless anyone objects, I'd like to call a, I'd like to call this portion of a meeting to adjournment and start setting up for a swap meet. What do you say? The crowds burst into a buzz of enthusiastic comments, as if the sour news from the outside world could be dispelled by some positive talk. Okay, then. Meeting adjourned. Landers rapped on the table. Everybody, fold up your chair and set them against the back wall over there. Could we get some volunteers to set up the tables? Everyone rose at the same time, like a flock of city pigeons scared up by a running child. The roar of scraping chair legs rivaled the burst of loud conversations. People scattered in all directions. People folded up the old wooden chairs and carried them to the back. Pairs of people carried out the long folding tables into the middle of the room. Others maneuvered through the bustle to retrieve boxes of barter goods left along the outside walls. Someone dropped one of the long folding tables. It landed on the hardwood floor with a loud slap. A couple of ladies nearest the table let out a reflexive scream. A couple of stressed-out men took to shouting accusations. Over the roar of screams, shouting, and clatter came a booming voice. Relax, everyone! Remain calm! As if it were a huge game of red light, green light, everyone froze in the middle of whatever they were doing and looked at the doorway. 
Through the double doors strode a big-boned man dressed all in black. The white letters, FEMA, were printed over his jacket pocket. He pushed through the crowd, an impatient Moses. Behind the big FEMA man shuffled a smaller man, also in black, carrying a black box the size of a milk crate. Behind them, several more FEMA men stepped in, but stood on either side of the doorway. The little man put down his black box on the selectman table. The bigger man strode to the front of the room and held his arms high. Calm down! Calm down! There's no need to panic, good citizens. We are from FEMA, and we're here to help. Oh, thank goodness! Candace clapped her hands together with joy. The room full of people had put down their boxes and tables, but continued to stare at the big man in black. I just knew you'd come and help us, said Candace with a dramatic flourish. Martin studied the half-dozen FEMA men still in the doorway. They all had sidearms and hip holsters. Martin had always pictured relief aid workers as grandmotherly types with stacks of blankets and trays of cookies. Not a semi-SWAT team. You will all be okay, said the big man slowly and deliberately, as if he was addressing children. There is no reason to panic. Who's panicking, Martin thought. My name is Jack Quinn, announced the big man. I am the FEMA Deputy Branch Director for all of Southern New Hampshire. He held his arms out and pronounced his title succinctly, then paused so its importance could fully register with the frightened masses. We have everything under control. There is no cause for fear. We will be trucking in relief supplies soon. I told you so, Candace said to Landers. I knew they wouldn't let us down. But, continued Quinn, there are a couple of important points I must make you all aware of. He held up his clipboard. The department cannot yet prohibit civilian travel on state roads. Yet, Merton said to himself. But we do strongly advise you to just sit tight. We will bring the aid to you. We will take care of you. Rest assured and remain calm. Do not drive around looking for supplies. You will only impede emergency vehicles or department officials trying to do their jobs. Candace nodded her head and muttered, Oh, we will be safe in our homes. For your own safety, bellowed Quinn, you should all shelter in place until further notice. Quinn continued in a broad, sympathetic tone. The department knows that in this time of crisis you are facing dire hardships beyond your capacity to cope. The department knows this, but never lose hope. FEMA is on the scene. We have things under control and will supply your needs. He motioned for his squad at the back of the room. They ducked out to the stairway. Quinn looked at his clipboard. A FEMA truck will arrive at your city center on uh, Wednesday at 3 p.m. At that time, we will disperse individual supply packages, food, water, medicines, intended to get you through the next several days. Everyone will form into one orderly line for the dispersal. No unruliness will be tolerated. 
Quinn motioned for his men to re-enter the room. To assure you that help is, indeed, on the way, my men are distributing some much-needed supplies to comfort you and tide you over until our truck arrives. His men returned, each with an armful of small brown paper bundles. The men worked their way through the crowd, handing out the bundles to random citizens. Roughly one in four received a package. A second supply truck is scheduled to arrive Friday. This will be for your local distribution node, which is covered in the procedural documents. I want to leave these follow-up instructions with you to guide you through these difficult times. Are there any members of your former civil authority structure present? No one in the crowd seemed to know what Quinn was asking. Ah, that is sad, he said without sincerity. Expected, but nonetheless. Landers raised his hand, like a schoolboy, unsure of his quiz answer. Uh, did you mean uh, members of the town government? I'm the chair of the board of selectmen. I'm Jeff Led. What? Oh, uh, yeah, that's fine. Quinn didn't sound especially pleased. Glad to see some remnant of the local governance has survived. That may be useful to us, said Quinn. He motioned to his assistant. The little man took a fat manila envelope out of the box and handed it to Landers. These are the updated documents which supersede any prior emergency plans you may have received. They outline the next steps to be taken in preparation at the local level for the longer-term management of this crisis. I am in charge of this sector, Quinn said with evident pride. I will be your conduit for contact with the state FEMA director. All your concerns will be routed through me, understand? I'll come back through on Wednesday to check on compliance, or shall we say, progress. Quinn crossed the room toward the doorway. The Red Sea parted for Moses more easily this time. In passing, he gave a man's shoulder a reassuring squeeze. He patted Mrs. Colliff on the head as he walked by. Candace shook his hand vigorously, thanking him in gushes as if he had cured her of cancer. The other FEMA men formed up behind Quinn in two lines and followed him down the stairs. Everyone in the room watched silently, like children watching the last of the bathwater swirl down the drain. When the bathwater was gone, people looked up at each other. Wilder broke the silence. What the heck was that all about? Yeah, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure he wants us to remain calm, said Hooper. Who is this Quinn? asked Drew. FEMA, I know, but I've never heard of him. Have you? I don't think so, said Landers. Some FEMA honcho, apparently. He's got himself a squad of men with guns and all, so I guess that means he's somebody really important. He certainly thinks so, said Hooper, as he peered out the window. And he's got himself a fancy black Escalade, too. Never seen one with all the chrome blacked out before, and lots of little antennae on the roof. Others pushed up to the window for a look. Martin could only get glimpses between them. His squad of men got a boring old white suburban. It looks kind of dumpy next to Quinn's ninja-mobile. Look in the back there. A woman pointed to the back of the Suburban. It's full of those little packages. That's right. Hey, what's in those things they handed out? Asked a man beside Hooper. 
the lucky recipients began tearing away the brown paper. I got a box of, uh, snake-bite kits. Mine's some bottles of official FEMA water. I got two food-pack things. Meal ready to eat, said a man. Ooh, beef enchilada. That sounds pretty good. A dozen nylon sandbags? Uh, we need sandbags? I got a lousy box of radiation detector badges, said Red Colliffe. A lady nearby gasped. Oh, there's a problem at Seabrook? Does this mean there's a problem at Seabrook? Her eyes darted from one person to another, looking for a wave of panic that she might join. Now, nah, don't get all spooked, Nancy, said Landers. Chief Berg would have gotten something on his radio if there was a problem at Seabrook. Keep in mind, they also gave us snake-bite kits, and we don't got a plague of snakes, either. And, Martin spoke up, that lineman I spoke to on Friday said that Seabrook was fine, and went into shutdown mode right away. Darn, said a man near Martin, as he peeled back the round paper. Two bottles of FEMA water. <laughs> I got a well. Hey, I got some MREs, too, said a man near the stage. Veggie burger. Really? Veggie burger? Anyone want to trade? Veggie burger's more healthy for you than uh, enchiladas. What do you say? Oh, no way. Uh-oh, said Hooper with melodrama. Better cover up them radiation badges, Red. Jeff Sweater's gonna set off the whole box of them like firecrackers. Hooper got into a long chuckle, obviously taken with his own joke. Others laughed lightly, too, though more at him than with him. Very funny, Hooper. Landers rolled his eyes as he walked back to the center of the room. Okay, everyone. Everyone, can I have your attention for a minute? The den began to fade except for a little knot of women in intense chat mode. Ahem, Nancy. The ladies looked up sheepishly. Thank you. Before we resume setting up tables for our first town market, this Quinn fellow said that a supply truck would be here on Wednesday at three o'clock, and another one on Friday. Make sure to tell your neighbors about this, since not everyone is here today. If FEMA is handing out supplies, uh, like snake-bite kits and sandbags? Yeah, well, whatever. We may as well take whatever resources they're handing out. Besides, said an older man by the door, I bet we've already bought them three times over. Might as well get something back for our already spent tax dollars. Yeah, said another. What we don't need, we can trade. If Nutfield is overrun with snakes, we could trade them for their MREs or something. Yeah, who knows? Flanders resumed. Yes, well, remember to tell your neighbors about the trucks coming on Wednesday and Friday. Okay, carry on setting up. The pre-Quinn bustle and chaos resumed. Folding tables blossomed like umbrellas at a sudden shower. Martin set his box of salsa on one end of a table. Susan hesitated to set her box down beside his. She said two different tables. Martin took her box and set it at the end of the table next to his. There separate tables. He smiled. That's almost like lying, she furrowed her brow. Would you rather go to another table, he asked. Well, no, but... We'll just be two separate citizens trading different things. No big deal. Hi, Simmons, said Landers. Yeah, great idea, swap meet. You had a really good turnout, too. Oh, is this some of your wife's jam? He pulled out a jar and held it up to the light. Yeah, we're friends with Lance and Miriam Walker on your road, he turned to Susan. They talk very highly of your jam. Susan glanced at Martin with a worried smile. His plan for separate citizens didn't last thirty seconds. 
I had better trade for one of these gems, or my wife will slug me. Oh, what are you looking to trade for there, Mrs. Uh, Sim? Uh, meat, Susan interrupted. We're, I mean, I'm hoping to trade for some meat. Canned tuna, something like that. Her nervous smile widened. Ah, shoot, I didn't bring any meat things. Well, what about peaches? My wife has a lot of canned peaches. Susan shook her head. No, sorry, maybe some beans? Hmm, mused Landers. I didn't bring beans either, but I saw some back at another table. Maybe I can trade some peaches for beans and come back. Rapid little nods made her curls bounce. Landers waved and melted into the crowd, slowly flowing by the tables. He thought I was your wife. There was a trace of shock in her hoarse whisper. So, Martin said. He pulled out a few jars to make a more attractive display. That happened on the way up here, too. Why the freak out now? That was down there, with people who don't know us. I mean, I, I don't mean us. It's not like there is an us so much. That sounds, she blushed. I mean, it's different up here, where people know you and her. You were just saying how she was a fireball at that town meeting and got you kicked out of town. We weren't kicked out of town. Okay, whatever. My point is, I can't afford to have her go all fireball on me and kick me out. Where would I go? You won't get kicked out, Merton reassured with a dismissive wave. He had seen many years of Margaret's steadfast duty to Christian hospitality. He couldn't picture her tossing Susan out in the snow. There could be some icy days that were incredibly fine, but no actual eviction. Just be careful, he said. Know what I mean? Susan looked him in the eye for a long moment, longer than he felt comfortable with. A small, wry smile eased her worried look. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Her smile derailed his train of thought. Now Martin wasn't quite sure he knew what he meant, but at least she was smiling again. That seemed like progress, in a vague way. He also felt that he needed to not see her eyes for a while. They were trouble. How about if I walk around and see what else is out here? You stay here and trade. The long tables held a wide assortment of food items, though few of them were enticing. Some old canned goods had clearly been forgotten in the back of a pantry for many years. One man had frozen venison in a cooler. He wanted twenty dollars for a small steak. Martin declined with a shrug. Some folks from Carrollton Orchards had bags of apples. A lady with Spring Pond Farm on her ball cap was offering pumpkins, some quite large. A man in dirty Carhartt coveralls had an armload of firewood on a table. That was his marketing sampler. He was negotiating with a pair of men over the delivery of a cord or two. Mr. Carhartt was accepting cash only. From the head-shaking and arm-flailing, Martin guessed the men didn't have several hundred dollars in cash. Bartering for large-value items was a challenge. In the back corner of the room sat a woman with an array of metal knick-knacks on her little card table. No one was showing any interest in her craft items. She looked both hopeful and worried. Some people were striking bargains. They walked up and down the rows of tables with a mix of goods in their arms. Martin returned to his boxes, thinking he should carry around a couple of jars of salsa for some quick bargaining. Look it, Susan beamed. I traded two jars of jam for this one can of kidney beans. That, that's a good bargain, right? Uh, isn't it? I guess so. 
I'm going to take a couple of jars of salsa and walk the floor. You stay here and keep up the bargaining, she nodded enthusiastically. Martin ran into Landers in the middle of a long row. Ah, Simmons, you got any of your wife's jam left? Martin nodded. Ah, good, good. You know, Lance told me a while back that you had a very pretty wife. Oh, he sure was right. Martin could feel his face getting hot. Margaret would not be amused at the mistaken identities. Well, actually, she's not— Oh, wait, Landers blurted out. That woman just set out a can of beans, a hot dog. That woman don't know it yet, but she needs some peaches. Hope to be talking to you and the missus real soon. See you later. Landers wove his way through the slow lines of traders in the aisle. Martin sighed. Holes get dug so incredibly fast. He vowed to correct the misunderstanding when Landers came to trade for the jam. He continued walking the aisles. At a table near the stairs for the stage, a man with a straggly beard had a tub of ice water on his table. In the tub were jugs of milk. Beside the tub was a little pyramid of wax paper wrapped squares. It was the first non-bean protein he had seen, aside from the gold-plated venison. Index cards propped against the tub and the pyramid had $20 scrawled on them. Gold-plated milk, too? Since the banks and ATMs were closed indefinitely, Martin was inclined to carefully marshal whatever cash they had. Who knew what they might need to buy later? Medicines? Ammo? Overpriced foods would use up that limited resource pretty quickly. Still, Martin reasoned, perhaps there was some haggling opportunities. "'What do you have there?' Martin asked. "'Goat's milk,' said the bearded man. The man seemed delighted that anyone was asking. "'And some goat cheese. Interested? It tastes pretty much like cow's milk, but it's much more healthy for you and a great source of protein, vitamins, and probiotics.' The bearded man's pitch sounded like a salesman's code for, this is technically food, but it tastes bad. He held an imploring smile, with drooping eyebrows that seemed to say, please don't run away. Been having trouble selling him? Martin asked. He noted that the tub was still full of milk jugs and the pyramid complete. The man looked like he needed cheering up. A little conversation wouldn't cost anything. Oh, you have no idea. I thought people were hungry or at least less fussy. The older folks don't seem all that hungry, and the younger ones, well, as soon as I say it's goat's milk, I can see their noses wrinkle. The stuff tastes fine. They have no idea. I mean, what do you think it tastes like? Licking a buck? Oh, come on! The man was clearly exasperated. No point in my setting out my goat salami if people can't even handle the idea of milk. Salami? Yeah. The man scooted a cardboard box out from under the table with his foot. It contained a half-dozen loops of dark sausage. He kicked the box back under the table. Yeah, my ice is pretty much melted. I may as well be packing up. Well, hold on, Martin said. Maybe you just need an icebreaker. He was intrigued with the goat salami idea. He recalled how no one at Market Basket was taking the Vienna sausages until he started taking some. Someone just has to go first. That might work again. It was time to strike a bargain. What do you mean, icebreaker? Well, I don't have twenty bucks, Martin said, which was a lie. He had forty. But he skirted the edges of lying by mentally finishing his sentence with, that I would spend on goat's milk. But I do have these two jars of salsa my wife made. What if I trade you these two jars for one of the salami loops 
and one block of cheese. The man started to shake his head. Sorry, I need to get... Hold on, hold on, I'm not done. I'm thinking that what you might need is for someone to go first. What I'll do is walk around the aisles, holding them up so people can see them, maybe sniffing them and going, ah, and stuff like that. Eh, okay, no, that's kind of corny. But I bet that if people see that someone else has bought them, they wouldn't be as spooked. Martin could see the wheels turning, but no light bulb was coming on yet. Now, I can see that a couple of jars of salsa aren't really an even trade for your salami. They're a lot of work. This would be for the marketing labor, too. Tell you what, if after I've gone around admiring the salami that you haven't sold anything, the deal's off and you're out nothing, I take my salsa back and we go our separate ways. The man stroked his scraggly chin. Hmm, nothing to lose. Okay, go for it. They shook hands. Martin meandered up and down the aisles, looking at people's goods, but making sure he carried the loop of salami prominently, like a new fiancé wears her ring. People did notice. "'Where did you get that?' Susan asked. "'I got this really nice salami over there,' Martin said. "'The bearded man by the stage has these. Some cheese and milk, too.' "'Why are you talking so loud?' It's a long story. This actually isn't mine, yet, though. It's kind of a loner. A loner sausage? Oh, whatever. Susan shook off his obtuseness. Never mind that. I traded for another can of beans. Baked beans this time. Pretty cool, huh? I've only got two jars left. It was that Mr. Landers. He came back. Oh, uh, did you say anything about... No, she frowned. He called me Mrs. Simmons again. I was about to correct him. But he just kept talking, and then someone else came up, and he went off with them, still talking. I see. Well, maybe it won't matter. I have to go see if this salami is mine or not. Be back in a minute. Martin ambled toward the stage. The bearded man was busy talking to an older woman in a long gray coat and a young man in a down jacket. The young man handed over some money and walked away with a square of cheese. The woman haggled over how many jars of green beans were equal to a half gallon of goat's milk. The exchange rate was settled on four. Things looking up? Martin asked. Oh, yeah. Hey, thanks a ton for helping. Jerry's the name, by the way. Uh, Martin. I'm new in Cheshire, but I've been doing goats for years. Moved in this past spring. Most of my produce goes to suppliers. Never really tried to sell local. Today, I figured local retail was a total fail. Now? Uh, maybe not. I sold or traded all my other salamis. Half my cheese is gone, too. Looks like a deal's a deal. Enjoy your salami. Maybe see you next week. Martin and Susan boxed their untraded jars and their new treasures. During the walk home, Susan mused aloud about how cumbersome a process the trade and bartering were. People had too limited supplies for trading and too narrow of needs. A poor combination for fluid commerce. Many tried to use cash, but there seemed to be a shortage of paper money to use for the exchange. She wondered what would happen in later swap meets when people had traded away their excess. Cheshire had, essentially, a fixed money supply to work with, and a small one at that. How did it go? Margaret asked. Did the separate tables work out well? Martin could feel Susan glance at him, but he kept his eyes on Margaret's eyes. Actually, I was walking the aisles, so I wasn't really at a table. Margaret smiled a bit at this news. 
Well, then, let's just see what you got, she said. What's this, a sausage? Well, it's a salami, technically, but yeah, there was a guy there who has a goat farm. Goat? Susan said with a worried look. You didn't say it was goat sausage. Oh, you won't be able to tell, Martin said. It's all spiced up, smoked and dried. Sure, this will make us quite a few nice meals. It'll go well with your sauerkraut, Margaret said with a smile. She turned to Susan with a flat expression. And what did you get? she asked in a tone that schoolteachers use to ask for late homework. Um, two cans of beans? After the warm reception the salami got, two cans of beans seemed like a feeble prize. Margaret hefted them with her hands a few times. They were the larger-sized cans. Well, these are nice. There's a couple of good meals in here as well. Looks like you did pretty good, too. The corners of Susan's mouth twitched up in a hint of a smile. She might have taken one step back from the precipice of being thrown out in the snow. But would it be enough if the mistaken identity thing got back to Margaret? Ah, FEMA to the rescue. But the good citizens are taking care of themselves just the same. Many thanks to those of you who bought me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash McRoland. I really do appreciate the support. Thanks.